This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. In this episode, we will discuss how physical activity affects cognition and brain outcomes. Our distinguished guest is a researcher at heart. His research examines cognitive neuroscience, aging, neuroplasticity, genetics, and molecular mechanism of cognitive function. He received his PhD at the University of Illinois and has worked as a professor in the brain aging and cognitive health lab at the University of Pittsburgh. Over the last five years, he has received over $50 million of the National Institutes of Health funding. In his illustrious career, he has published 15 book chapters and over 240 scientific articles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Kirk Erickson. Welcome, Dr. Erickson. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Yeah, an honor to have you. So let's go right into it. How how does exercise affect cognition and brain outcomes? So very excellent question to start off start off the discussion with. Um, so we know that exercise affects the brain in a number of very important ways, um, especially as we get older, um, when we start to see some changes in our memory function and our cognitive function, it appears as if exercise uh, is, is a very effective way of maintaining brain function uh, throughout late adulthood um, and even enhancing brain function and in particular memory function and what we refer to as executive control or executive function, which is something of an umbrella term that just generally refers to higher level or higher order functioning. So your ability to pay attention to me right now, for example, is uh, supported by executive function. That's a, that, that aspect of selectively attending to things is an aspect of executive touch executive function. So it's these these aspects of brain function and cognitive function that we know are affected by engaging in regular amounts of physical activity. And there's now really a wealth of data indicating that this is true. We don't we no longer have to debate and argue this. We're now debating more subtle questions and and research is still asking some of those more uh, subtle questions that we need answers to in order for us to be um, prescribing physical activity. Now, the question of how also, you might be asking the mechanisms, right? How does this work? Um, that's something else that we're still uh, still trying to understand. We know that exercise affects every molecular cellular system in the body. So it's sometimes difficult to track down exactly the precise pathways that are affected. Uh, but we know that exercise um, affects different things inside the brain. So different molecules and what we refer to as neurotransmitters or uh, chemicals that allow communication between one cell to another cell. And we know that exercise affects the production and secretion of a number of these really important molecules in the brain. But uh, exercise also influences many other pathways, um, peripheral 
throughout the body, exercises affecting uh, different systems. And it's very possible that those different systems are in turn affecting the brain. So the question of how does exercise affect the brain, I think is a very important question. And we've got a lot of answers, but um, we still have a lot to learn. And and you said that it's important for older people maintaining the cognitive functions. How, how is it in lifespan? Do we have benefits throughout the lifespan or how, how is it? Yeah, so most of the data, most of the studies now are really focusing on uh, childhood, early childhood, um, early stages of brain development and maturation, and then also in late adulthood. And we know less about um, what's happening in adolescent periods, and we know less about what's happening in young adulthood. Um, however, we do think that it's incredibly important to begin exercise and start engaging in exercise and exercise routine and building that habit earlier in the lifespan. So here the question is, is there's, there's a couple questions here. One is, is um, if you start exercising late in life, do you still reap the benefits, so to say, of starting to engage in exercise? And the answer seems to be yes. It's never too late to start. So that's an important point, an important message. However, if you start earlier in the lifespan, do you gain more and do you maintain more? Are you more likely to delay the onset of cognitive decline or even prevent neurological or neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease? And the answer seems to be yes. So starting earlier in the lifespan seems to have an effect, even if maybe you don't see the cognitive benefits in young adulthood, which is possible. Those benefits on the underlying biology on the physiology of the brain might accumulate and might uh, might sustain the brain for a longer period of time. I'm actually having a recording tomorrow with Professor Charles Hillman, who's studying the young brain. He can give you some of that information on the young adult, or I'm sorry, the uh, the young childhood uh, patterns that we see. Um, but I think he'll probably agree with me that uh, he would agree with me that we know much more about young childhood early childhood development and the impact of physical activity at that age. Uh, and then also in late adulthood, uh, there's there's some gaps in the rest of the lifespan. And so we, so we know that exercise per se is affecting the brain. Is it linked that you need to have fitness gains or does every bout of exercise have kind of acute effects? How much is it linked to the gains of fitness and maybe metabolic function and how much per se exercise as such? This is a, a, a very excellent question. So one of the things that we know quite conclusively is that an acute bout of exercise, if you get on, go for a quick run or get on the treadmill or a bike for 10, 20, 30 minutes, uh, you will see some cognitive enhancement due to that acute bout of exercise. So we know that there are very significant um, benefits from acute exercise engagement. Now, the question, another question is, is, is whether those, the mechanisms underlying those acute bouts of exercise are the same mechanisms underlying the benefits that we see from long-term, more continuous engagement in exercise behaviors, more of the habit and chronic engagement. And that's a question that we don't have a good answer for right now. There are some, there, there has been some speculation for quite a few years now that changes in cardiorespiratory fitness 
is an important prerequisite for seeing cognitive and brain changes from engaging in long-term exercise behaviors. So there is this speculation, there has been this thought, and there is some data indicating this, but I would say that we still don't really know. Um, it could be alternate mechanisms. So for an example, let's say that part of the cognitive enhancement due to exercise is because of changes in inflammation. Changes in inflammation might not need or might not require changes in fitness. In other words, engaging in activity uh, might induce changes in inflammation, and that person might not see, might not have changes in fitness levels. And if inflammation is driving changes in inflammation, exercise-induced changes in inflammation are driving the changes in cognition, then changes in fitness are not a prerequisite for the changes in cognition. So this is an important question. This is part of the reason, coming back to my point earlier, where we, we have an understanding that exercise has this incredibly complex effect on the body, including the brain, and highlighting and trying to determine the precise pathways by which one thing leads to another can be very difficult when you're talking about hundreds or even thousands of different molecular pathways. So um, in short, uh, there's a lot of people that think, coming back to your original question, there's a lot of people that think that fitness is a prerequisite for changes in cognition. But, um, but I would say that we still, the, the, the jury is still out to some degree. And it may be a more complicated answer. For an example, it may be that in older adults, changes in fitness level is a prerequisite for changes in cognition, but maybe not in children. Uh, maybe in people who have uh, schizophrenia, changes in cardiorespiratory fitness is unnecessary, an unnecessary aspect of, of changes in cognition. So, so there's, there's some complex, uh, there's probably some complexities here that uh, we still don't have a good grasp on, but um, it's a very good question. And yeah, if we have thousands of pathways, probably it's quite complicated. And how, how do you see this lot of studies about sedentary behavior? And you can break sedentary behavior with very light intensity activity. Do, do you think light activity will have some effects or does it need to be maybe moderate or vigorous intensity activity? I think that you will gain more by engaging in higher intensity activity. Uh, however, I do think moving from a sedentary state to a light active state uh, will show benefits. Um, an important question is how much do you need, right? So uh, if you replace 30 minutes of sedentary activity for 30 minutes of light activity, is that going to be a sufficient amount in order to induce some changes in cognitive and brain function? I don't think we have a good answer for that right now. Uh, we, many of us often sit for quite a few hours a day. Um, and are quite sedentary in our in our jobs and um, in our lifestyles, and so I, I think that we need to start thinking about replacing sedentary behavior for light activity. But we don't know how much. Part of the reason why this is really important is that um, changing sedentary behavior, replacing thirty minutes or an hour or two hours a day of sedentary behavior with moderate intensity activity, is unlikely to happen for a lot of people. Uh, and so if we really want to be thinking practically and realistically about changing behavior, improving health, then I think we have to be focusing a bit more on light activity because I think that that is, 
an area where we're likely to be engaging more people, uh, getting people just up off the couch or out of their chairs and just walking around a bit more, um, I think is going to be a, a, a major way, a very important way of improving health outcomes. And earlier you mentioned that exercise especially affects the executive function. And I assume it's a lot of differences happening in hippocampus. Uh, Does exercise have effects on other parts of the brain or is it somehow that we are studying the hippocampus more or we see the changes more easily there? Yeah, this is uh, a question that we continue to to discuss and and, um, ask ourselves as well. When we first came on the field, and started studying the brain, the effects were not in the hippocampus. The effects were actually in the more in the prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex, which is really more in the frontal frontal regions and the medial region of the brain. And that's where that's where the the bulk of the data really started out and really came from. So I would say that that the the brain isn't um, the brain. I'm sorry, the hippocampus isn't the only region of the brain that is affected by exercise. Uh, there are other regions, the prefrontal cortex being one. Now, coming back to your question here, I think that there's some nuances uh, to your question that deserve some attention. One is that, as you mentioned, the the hippocampus is is often studied more frequently than um, than other regions. And so that's part of the reason why it might be, or might be part of the reason why it's reported more frequently. Uh, The prefrontal cortex is also a massive part of the human brain. And so it's easy to study. It's easy. It's easier for us to assess in some ways, uh, both functionally and and morphologically in terms of volume and size. So I think that those are, those are some critical points. The other kind of question that, that can emerge from this is why the hippocampus and why the prefrontal cortex and why not some of the other brain regions? Um, there's a few a few reasons that I've been speculating. No one know, no one has a good answer for this. Let me just start out by that by saying that. But um, uh, there there have been some speculations around this. Once one reason um, or one speculative hypothesis here is that uh, the brain regions that show some decline with age are the prefrontal cortex and hippocampus. So those areas that are more susceptible to early aging seem to be those areas that are more susceptible to improvements with physical activity and exercise. Um, Similarly, in childhood, the prefrontal cortex is the least developed um, and the latest to develop. And so uh, the brain regions that seem to show some late growth and early decline are the regions that seem to be the most susceptible um, to engaging in physical activity and exercise. So I I think that that might be part of the reason, but, uh, but we still have a lot of work to better understand that. And you mentioned that exercise affects, for example, secretion of different molecules. Do those work selectively or do we know that can they affect just certain part of the brain and not the others? They are very selective. Um, and so there's higher content for, for many neurotransmitters and molecules in the brain. They're more prevalent. They're more highly concentrated in some brain areas than other brain areas. And so that's another reason why the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex might be more selectively benefited from engaging in exercise. And, and in other words, that there's that exercise affects some molecules and some neurotransmitters more than others. 
And it just so happens that those neurotransmitters and those growth factors and those molecules are predominantly in the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. So that's another potential reason for the select the selectivity of exercise for those brain regions. But again, uh, it's difficult to get brain tissue in humans. <laughs> and so we have to very much rely on uh, rodent studies and, and other non-human animal studies uh, to better understand these pathways. And now there's quite a lot of studies about energy availability in the brain that it could be a reason for Alzheimer and so on. Do you do you see that the improved metabolism of exercise and better fitness has a big effect on on brain health? Yeah, there you're absolutely right. Uh, there's there's a, a growing focus and interest on this. Uh, and we know that metabolic conditions, cardiometabolic conditions are related to brain health, brain function, risk for Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative conditions more generally in late adulthood, especially. But we also know that even in childhood, childhood onset type 2 diabetes um, is related to um, uh, faster deterioration of the brain um, and, and more brain impairment, even at that childhood age. So, so we we know that these things affect the brain. We know that um, aspects of energy and metabolism are 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 important aspects of the body, the brain, and its functioning. Whether changes in energetics underlie or mediate some of the cognitive improvements resulting from engaging in exercise really remains an important unanswered question right now. Some of our work, some of Chuck Hillman's work and others are trying to examine this more closely and get a better appreciation and understanding of how these things are linked. And I think there's now some studies showing that creatine supplementation is also good for the brain it's shown long time ago that it's good for performance muscle but also probably at the level of brain it is exactly and there and we're now starting to get and a lot of this work still comes comes down to rodent and non-human animal work um, but we are with our technological improvements we are now starting to obtain better assessments, more accurate assessments of the living human brain and some of the markers of brain energy or energetics. So we're still in kind of some early phases and it hasn't been applied very well or very frequently to exercise interventions, but that's certainly the way that some of the field is going. And how, how much do we know about different types of activity, this strength training, this aerobic exercise, both of those can have quite a big skills component depending on the activity you do. So how much do we know how do these affect is the cardio respiratory fitness improvements requirement? What do we know about different types of activity? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, so most of the research that's been done is focused on aerobic activities, walking primarily or other types of aerobic activities. So to some extent, um, kind of mirroring or mimicking some of what you mentioned earlier, we just know a lot more about the benefits of, of a, more of aerobic exercise. So it's not that other modes of activity are not effective. It's just that we know less. There's been a burst of studies coming out fairly recently on strength training and resistance training. So that's another area where I think I can feel, we can feel a bit more confident now about the benefits of aerobic, uh, I'm sorry, of, of strength or resistance training on uh, brain health outcomes, especially in late adulthood. 
say less is known uh, about young adulthood or childhood, but we certainly um, we've certainly learned a lot more over the past several years about those benefits. Now you can break it down even further, of course. So for an example, if you play tennis every day instead of going for a walk, um, it, are you going to gain the same amount from playing tennis as you would from a walk? Um, is going to the pool and swimming um, as effective or more effective than going for a walk? These are also very important questions about the types of activities that you should be engaging in. Now, most of us or many of us believe that it's not necessarily those specific modes, but more of the intensity, the frequency, the duration, that level of engagement um, and, uh, and time spent and intensity engaging in those activities that are driving some of the patterns. But that being said, resistance and strength, I think, are an important um an important type of activity that differs in some very important ways from aerobic activity. Um, and so there we're seeing maybe even some different mechanisms underlying the benefits of resistance and training on the brain compared to aerobic activity. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.